بسم الله والحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الله سبحانه وتعالى in the Quran he gives us certain principles overarching guidelines that explain to us the exact nature of this life and that lay out for us the principles and the major understandings of our religion and how this world exactly works, what will occur with us and what should be the appropriate response, and then ultimately what will be the conclusion. One of the things that is very important to understand is that a lot of times you hear discussions or rhetoric where people will say that the Qur'an contains all the answers. <clears throat> or that the life of the Prophet ﷺ will answer all of your questions. Obviously, we're dealing with scenarios and circumstances and situations that are not exactly laid out and spelled out within the Qur'an. We're dealing with issues that did not occur in the life of the Prophet ﷺ exactly. So how can the life of the Prophet ﷺ in the Qur'an be a resource for humanity till the end of time. So that even today, 1400 years later, halfway across the world, everything that we're dealing with and we're going through, and that all the Muslims around the world are dealing with, how can the Qur'an, which was revealed 1400 years ago, and the life of the Prophet ﷺ, which occurred 1400 years ago, still be the primary resource for us to be able to navigate what goes on in this life. And that's a very, very important question that we have to answer. <clears throat> and that we need to move beyond the rhetoric. Because as the sister mentioned even in the introduction here, we're dealing with so many issues all across the globe. And Muslims are dealing with so many unique circumstances in their everyday lives that while we've heard, we've been told, we've read that the Qur'an and the life of the Prophet ﷺ contain the solutions for your problems, how does that exactly match up? How does that exactly sync up? How do we exactly make sense of that? And the answer to that is that if you're looking for very, very specific outlines, if you're looking for very specific details, then you might not find a lot of that within the Qur'an and within the life of the Prophet ﷺ. But the Qur'an lays out for us principles, usul, axioms, guidelines. The life of the Prophet ﷺ gives us examples of scenarios. It might not address my exact specific scenario or situation in terms of the details, but it gives examples of similar scenarios. And if I can learn to think about that, and that's why I'm going to get to the topic at hand here in just a minute, but the first thing I have to emphasize, and I'm going to circle back to this at the end again, that we need to read we need to understand and we need to reflect and we need to think. It is not enough for us to be told that the Quran is this and the life of the Prophet is that. We need to read it for ourselves. We need to understand it for ourselves. And that's the second thing. That there is a great place in terms of the original wording and the language of the Quran. The original wording in the original language of the Qur'an in the Arabic in which God revealed it is sacred. It is sacred. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, So that you may think about it, you may understand it. Why don't they think about and ponder upon and reflect upon the Qur'an? So we need to strive for understanding. Empower yourself with the understanding of the Qur'an. Empower yourself with the knowledge and the understanding of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And that means a couple of things. Number one, 
if someone has the ability to be able to read the Qur'an and understand what it's saying in its native language, it's an original form, they have the background and the ability to do so, then that's excellence. But if I'm not there yet, there is no problem, there is no shame, and there should not be any hesitation to access any kind of academic material, like a translation of the Qur'an, like a book on the life of the Prophet ﷺ in the English language, to try to better understand what exactly the Qur'an is saying and what transpired in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And the second part of that is that in the Islamic tradition, in our 1400 years, we have a very beautiful tradition of knowledge and the understanding of the religion being passed on from person to person. From individual to individual. And this, we are part of a living, breathing tradition. That the, the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, the companions themselves, they say, like Abdullah bin Abbas, he says that I personally read the Qur'an to the Prophet ﷺ and heard it from him multiple times in its entirety in my life, dur during his lifetime. They learned it directly from the Prophet ﷺ. And then they went on and taught it to the next generation directly. كُنَّا نُعَلِّمُ أَوْلَادَنَا that they say that we would teach our children the life and times of the Prophet ﷺ, just like we would teach them chapters and surahs of the Qur'an. So then find people of knowledge and learn from their knowledge and understand better the Qur'an, the depth of the Qur'an and the depth of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. So the first thing is, read it for yourself. Number two, understand it and utilize whatever tools are available to you in order to be able to understand it, whether it be translation or it be knowledgeable people. And the third thing is then reflect on it. Take time, sit with it, reflect on it, ponder it. Without that kind of time being invested into something, you are never able to really make use and make benefit of it. Anything that is worthwhile, anything that is good, it takes time. It takes time. You know, silly little examples, you can look at so many different examples, but silly little examples. I was just the other day talking to a friend of mine. And he's, um, he's a bit of a food connoisseur and you know, he cooks and experiments with all this kind of food and mashallah, his food's really great. And he was talking to me about pizza. And he makes his own pizza at home. And he was talking about how he lets this dough sit for like days, four or five days. And I said, really? Who's got time for that? But he said, well, you like the product, don't you? You like the outcome? You like the results? And I said, yeah, the result is great. It's fantastic. Well, he said, well, it takes time. If you want to rush it, then you'll get the outcome will be according. So it needs time. We need to reflect on things. We need to think about things. We need to ponder things. Spend time with this understanding. And if we're able to do that, these three steps, read, understand, and reflect. If we're able to do this, then you'll unlock something that will absolutely, without any exaggeration, change your life. Because then you will have unlocked this never-ending resource that has all these principles and guidelines and examples and like similar scenarios that you'll be able to apply anything in this life that you come across, you'll be able to apply it there and have an understanding as to how to navigate it, how to understand it, how to view it, how to see it, how to internalize it, how to feel about it. And one of the things that is the focus of this particular session, that is of particular uh, significance at the moment, and that is the trials, the tests, the tragedies, the adversities, the catastrophes that the Muslim Ummah is dealing with currently.
both here and all around the world. We have so many different issues that we are dealing with in our community. There is the political climate and the negative uh, attention that is put on Muslims here and how Muslims are being vilified and targeted here. And then when we glance around the world, the atrocities and the difficulties that we see just absolutely leave you speechless. And if you don't have anything to fall back on, it can even leave you broken. When you see what's going on with Muslims in Palestine, or in Syria, or in Iraq, or in China, in Burma, in Kashmir, and the list goes on and on. So how do we exactly understand this? Because at some point, and I will present the question, and even the question itself makes your skin crawl, that if Islam is correct, <clears throat> if Muslims are people who believe in the proper deen of Allah, Muslims are good people fundamentally, Islam is good, Muslims are good, then what's going on? How can this be the reality? On one side, <clears throat> someone could say that we have this current state of affairs because we as Muslims are not maybe properly practicing or understanding and implementing and living by our religion as we should. That's a thought and idea somebody might say. But the answer to that is, but God is still merciful. And this is still a religion of mercy. And number two, I am more than, I am more than free to gauge myself, to critique myself, that maybe I am not living in accordance with my Islam. Maybe I am not as devoted to Allah as I should be. But what gave me the right to pass that judgment on a whole nother group of people like the Prophet ﷺ said, Did you open up their hearts and look inside their hearts to see what's in their hearts? No. Wallahu alimu And God alone is the one who knows what's contained within the hearts, what's sealed within the chests. So I have no idea. I have absolutely no right to speak on anyone else's behalf. So my Muslim brothers and sisters who are struggling, who are enduring, I have absolutely no right to be able to say, well, maybe they're not practicing their Islam properly. They're not devoted to their Islam as they should be. And that's why they are in the situation that they're in. Absolutely not. So then how do we go about understanding and making sense of this? So this is when we turn to the Qur'an and this is when we turn to the life of the Prophet The first thing that we need to understand is that we as creation, we as human beings, we are constructed of two parts. And technically, if we want to be even more technical, three parts. We are constructed of three parts. There is the jasad, there is the body, the physical body, the physical reality that we have here. Number two is the aql, <clears throat> the intelligence, the cognizance. <coughs> the intelligence and the cognizance that we are able to understand, we are able to think, we are able to arrive at conclusions. Number three is the soul, the ruh, which can also be referred to in a sense as the consciousness that we have. Our consciousness, our awareness, our soul, the ruh. We are constructed of these three parts. Of these three parts, the, the soul is everlasting. The soul is eternal. The soul is never ending. This body is very, very temporary. 
It exists in this world. And then there will come a time when this body will basically wither. It will die. It will decompose. And it will be nothing. The mind and the intellect is something that is very, very limited and cannot think and cannot grasp something outside of a certain scope. It's limited in its ability. So the body is very temporary. The mind is very limited. The soul is something that is eternal. It's everlasting. The first thing that we have to understand is that the equation of this life for Muslims will never ever make sense. I will, I will never be able to win a debate. I will never be able to win an argument about the reality of this world and what we experience in this world and what it means if we do not first establish the premise. We do not first grasp the reality that while we exist right now, right here in this world, there is a life after death and we are to live in that eternal life of the hereafter forever and ever and ever. We have to understand that we are not just worldly beings, we are spiritual eternal beings. In the sense that while our body will stay here, but the soul will continue on into the afterlife. And will be given another reality in the afterlife. If we can establish that premise, we can have a conversation based off of that, then this conversation can go somewhere. Because now when we talk about things, about, well, Islam is the truth. And Muslims believe in what's correct. And God is merciful. But you only have a 60 year window of reference that maybe your math is not going to add up. But if you have a frame of reference that extends beyond this life and goes into the afterlife, now it will absolutely make sense. And now we can talk about the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us within the Quran that the life of this world is a place of trial and tribulation. The life of this world is an opportunity to prove our worth and our value. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, مَنْ كَانَ يُرِيدُ حَرْثَ الْآخِرَةِ نَزِدْ لَهُ فِي حَرْثِهِ Allah gives us the example of a farmer. In surah number 42, ayah number 20, Allah gives us the example of a farmer. Now this goes back to that first thing I had mentioned. How is, in the, how is the example of farming relevant to us? How is the example of farming relevant to someone 1400 years later in America who works in IT? How do I understand farming? Well, Allah uses the example of farming, again, not because of the specifics, that it's only relevant to farmers. Allah uses the example of farming because... Farming involves certain truths and realities. Farming involves certain experiences that we can all relate to. What are some of the experiences of farming? Number one, it's really, really hard work. We've all experienced hard work at some point or another. Your, your hard work might not have been in farming. You might have been doing a master's degree or going to med school or raising children or whatever else your experience may be in life. But we can all relate to the theme of hard work. That some things are just really, really difficult. They're very hard. Number two, the other thing about farming is that it requires patience. It requires patience. If I'm buying and selling and trading online, then you know what? Something starts to seem like maybe it's going a little sideways. I can quickly change course. I can dump all of my product. I can try to cut my losses. I can maneuver quickly. I can switch quickly. But some things, they just require patience. You just have to stick with it for a long time. And then eventually you hope that it'll pay off at the end. Farming is like that. The farmer works, toils, just completely exhausts him or herself. 
Six months, seven months. Turning the soil, sowing the seeds, tending to the crop. Six months of non-stop hard work with no payoff. With no payoff. Nothing is coming back right now. But I have bills to pay. Well, you got to wait. <clears throat> I'm running out of money. You have to wait. I had an emergency come up. You have to wait. You can't speed up the harvest. It'll come when it comes. It'll arrive when it arrives. You can't do anything about it. <coughs> you have no choice but to just try to make do. And try to persevere. But there's no speeding up this train. You'll get there when you get there. And then there's this risk. This inherent risk that is assumed by a farmer. That the farmer has his whole life out there, out in the open, exposed to the elements. What if somebody comes by and lights a fire? We're done. What if an infestation of like locusts basically hits? The crop is gone. What if a tornado comes and tears through the land? Your harvest is gone. There's a risk that is being assumed. There is a risk that is taken on that cannot be avoided, that cannot be averted. So there's an element of trust and faith you're putting in that. And ultimately, what you're hoping for is a harvest. So that's why Allah gives the example of the farmer. Because we in the life of this world have to have the attitude of a farmer. We have to work hard. The payoff will come in the life of the hereafter. There's a lot of risk and danger that is assumed during this time. But Allah says, Man kana yuridu But if you keep your eyes on the prize, if you stay focused on the life of the hereafter, nazidlahu fi Allah will Allah says, Allah promises, we will give you more than what you deserve. We will give you more than what you've earned. We will give you more than what you should have gotten if we're just simply giving you based off of your effort. We'll give you more. We'll increase you. The hadith of the Prophet ﷺ talks about the fact that on the day of judgment when a man will come and Allah will tell the angels, remove the last person from hell, the last believing person from hell. Anyone who's got any amount of faith, find him and take him out of hell. And the last person that is removed from hell who barely got in. Allah will tell that person, ask what you want. And he will ask and ask and ask. And after he's exhausted, he's done asking, Allah will say, ask more. And he'll ask and ask and ask. And then Allah will say, ask more. And he'll ask until he'll say, I have nothing. I don't even know where to go anymore. I have nothing left to say. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say, you have been given everything that you have asked for, multiplied by 10. And he'll actually say, the Prophet says, that he'll say, you are the Lord of the worlds and you make fun of me? You're mocking me? I'm the lowest person. Last person to get out of hell. And you're saying I get that much? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say, that is the blessing and the benevolence of your Lord. So, understanding that, وَالْآخِرَةُ خَيْرٌ وَأَبَقَى Allah says, بَلْ تُؤْثِرُونَ الْحَيَاةَ الدُّنْيَا You keep prioritizing everything in this life, but in reality, the life of the hereafter is better and longer lasting. The life of the hereafter is much, much more worthy of your consideration. So understanding this first premise that the life of this world has ups and downs, highs and lows, good times and bad times, difficulties and adversities, but also victories. That is the nature of the life of this world. And then 
The eternal life of the life of the hereafter is where there is mercy and there is benevolence and there is the, the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala unlimited. Once we understand this, now we can start to talk about how to deal with the adversity in this world. But the first thing that needs to be understood, because if we do not understand that there is a life of the hereafter, how we're going to have trouble understanding. I understand some people go through difficulty, but then they also see victory in this life. They saw bad times, but they will see good times in this life. Some of the companions, like Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, like Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu, like Zayd radiallahu ta'ala anhu, all these companions, they experience very, very tough times in Mecca. And a lot of adversity in the early days of Medina. But then they got to see the glory of the conquest of Mecca and Hajjatul Wida. And they got to see Islam being established and spread in Medina. They saw that. But how do you understand Sumayya and Yasir radiallahu ta'ala anhumah? Alu Yasir, the family of Yasir. They accepted Islam in the early days of Mecca. And then they were tortured and they were persecuted for being Muslim. Until the point where they were killed because they were Muslim. While they were still in Mecca. They never got to see Medina. They never got to see Medina. So how do we understand them? The way we understand them is the Prophet ﷺ told us. He said, Sabran ala Yasir, inna mawidakum al Jannah. He said, Have patience, O family of Yasir, for you shall be reunited in paradise. Paradise waits for you. Paradise awaits you. The life of the hereafter will be yours. So we have to have that full vision. Now, secondly, while we are here and now. And we are seeing, and maybe some are even experiencing these adversities and difficulties, trials and tribulations. How do we manage them? How do we handle them? How do we conduct ourselves within them? Number one is that there's a profound question that a lot of people deal with and a lot of people struggle with. And that is the question of a test versus punishment. Am I being tested? Because the whole point of a test is I get to prove myself. And I get to, I get to establish myself through the test. Or is this a punishment from God? Understand that by default, and this is very important, so I want everyone to really understand. By default, everything is a test. The default is everything is a test. The only way to know for certain that something is a punishment is after it happens. Is after this life is over. That's the only way you can know that something is a punishment. Why? Allah tells us in the Quran that the people of Ad, the people of Thamud, the people of Lut, Fir'aun, Qarun, <clears throat> even from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, people like Abu Jahl, we knew that what they experienced was a punishment because after it was over, then we were able to confirm the fact that, okay, this was a punishment. This person was punished for being a bad person. But in the moment, everything by default is understood to be a test and a trial. A way to prove ourselves, a way to raise ourselves, a way to elevate ourselves. Because think about it, every single time in life, you've been able to graduate, you've been able to ascend, you've been able to rise to a new level, it always comes with some kind of a test. You have to prove yourself, you have to establish yourself that I have mastered, I have learned to manage the level that I am at now, and now I would like the opportunity to prove myself to be able to rise above. At work, you succeeded on a project. At school, you passed some examinations. But it always comes with some kind of, a little bit of difficulty, a little bit of adversity, and that is a test and a way to prove yourself and elevate yourself. And that is the understanding. So the tests that we deal with, how do we understand them and how do we make sense of them? 
Understand that in the analogy, in the example that I just gave you, that everything good you've ever experienced came after a test. And that's one of the great Quranic principles. Allah tells us that with difficulty comes ease. With difficulty comes ease. That there is always a test before then you are able to appreciate and you are able to enjoy some new level, some new stage in your life. That every great rise that came in this ummah came at the heels of some kind of difficulty and adversity. <clears throat> and none was probably greater than the departure of the Prophet ﷺ from this world. When the Muslims received Medina, they were given the gift of Medina. Medina was a gift. Medina was a gift. Pre-Medina, what did the Muslim Ummah look like? There were a hundred or so Muslims in Mecca who were publicly known as Muslims who were being persecuted and tortured and harassed. There was another hundred or so Muslims who were secretly Muslim. So they could not even publicly let people know that yes, I'm a Muslim. They had to lie about being Muslim. Another hundred or so people were living in refuge, in asylum, in East Africa, in Abyssinia, Habasha. That's what the Muslim Ummah looked like before Medina. It was not a pretty picture. Some Muslims are away from their homes and families. Some Muslims are having to lie about being Muslim. And those who are publicly Muslim are being tortured every single day. That was Islam. But they went through that difficulty and then they were given the gift of Medina. What was the gift of Medina? The gift of Medina was, here is a place that is safe. Here is a city that is yours. Here is a masjid that you can pray in public. You can call the adhan from. You can be Muslim and be proud of your Islam and not have to worry about anyone. 4 a.m. You can leave your home in the darkness and you can walk to the masjid and know that you'll be safe. 9 p.m. You can walk back home from the masjid in the darkness of night and know that nobody will lay a finger on you. That was a gift. You can sit in the masjid for hours and hours and hours and hours. And stare at the Prophet ﷺ and listen to his beautiful words. You can recite the Quran in public at the top of your lungs. And people will stop by and they'll thank you. That's a gift. But that gift came after a lot of blood was left on the ground in Mecca. But then Muslims in Medina... What were they experiencing? A year and a half, 18 months after arriving in Medina, they used to pray towards Masjid Aqsa. 18 months, a year and a half after arriving in Medina, the Qibla turned. Tahwilul Qibla. Fawalli wajhaka shatar al Masjid al Haram. The Qibla was turned and now they would pray towards the Kaaba in Mecca. Think about what it felt like that I know that the Kaaba is so sacred. We pray in this direction. It is the house of God, the foundations of which Abraham raised. It is meant for the worship of Allah. And yet the Meccans, oppressors, Oppressors are worshipping idols inside the Kaaba. Oppressors are worshipping idols inside the Kaaba. And that's the most sacred place on earth that we pray in the direction of. But we can't go there. We can't see it. We can't go near it. We can't clean it. We can't do what it was meant, what was meant to be done there. We can't do it. You got a bunch of oppressors worshipping idols inside the Kaaba. That's very difficult. But after that difficulty came the ease. Came the victory. Literal victory. Fatih Makkah, the opening of Makkah, the conquest of Makkah, where Muslims walked into Makkah, the Meccans surrendered, the Kaaba was cleansed. Ja al-Haqq wa zahaq al-Batil. 
The truth came and falsehood was removed and the Kaaba was restored to its original purpose. And that was the worship of one Allah. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. The Adhan was called from the Kaaba. After centuries, after millennia. And so after that difficulty came that ease. Came this beautiful moment, this beautiful experience. And just when everything seemed like it all, it had all fallen into place, we had Hajjatul Wida, over 124,000 Muslims assembled. That might not seem like a huge number. That might not seem, when we talk about Hajj, that doesn't seem like a huge number. But think about the fact that just 10 years ago, I told you that there were a hundred Muslims in Mecca lying, having to not disclose their Islam, having to hide their Islam. There were a hundred Muslims being tortured in Mecca and a hundred Muslims living as refugees in Abyssinia. That was what was going on. 10 years later, 124,000 Muslims assembled together in Mecca and performed Hajj with the Prophet ﷺ, Hajjatul Wida. It's a glorious moment. On the day of Arafah, the Prophet ﷺ gives khutbah to over 100,000 Muslims. And the Prophet ﷺ reminds us there, principles. Taraktu fikum amrain. I'm going to leave you with two resources. You will never lose your way as long as you hold on to these two things. The book of God, the Quran, and the life, the tradition of the Prophet Muhammad Hold on. Because you're going to need it. How true were his words? Because two and a half months, three, barely, not even a full three months, two and a half months after they returned back from Hajjatul Wida, the Prophet ﷺ departed from this world. The Prophet ﷺ became sick. He didn't have the physical strength to get up and go for prayer. He called for Ali and Fadl bin Abbas, his two cousins. He called for them and he said, I need your help. They lifted him up. He put his arms around their shoulders. And they took him for the prayer. And he couldn't stand and lead the prayer. They sat him down and he sat leading the prayer. And this went on for a couple of days until finally it was Fajr time. Just two or three days before he passed away. It's Fajr time. Saturday morning. And the Prophet ﷺ can't even sit up. He can't even sit. So forget about somebody carrying him. He can't even sit. And finally he tells Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, the mother of the believers, go tell your father, فَلْيُصَلِّ بِالنَّاسِ مُرِي أَبَا بَكْرٍ فَلْيُصَلِّ بِالنَّاسِ Go tell your father Abu Bakr, my most trusted companion, to lead the people in the prayer. And she says, oh messenger of God, if he stands at your place, having to fill in and stand in for you, he'll cry so much no one will even understand what he's saying in prayer. He loves you too much. He said, I know, but what needs to be done, it's what needs to be done. And so she goes and she tells Abu Bakr anhu, he comes to the masjid and he leads the people in prayer. The next two days, pins and needles. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Abu Bakr is leading the prayers. Some people who are closer to the Prophet ﷺ are going and checking on him and visiting him. He can't open his eyes. He's burning up with fever. He keeps asking for water, to put water on his face. And he's departing from this world. Until then, Sunday... He finally comes out in the afternoon and he addresses the people and he tells them, my time has come. God gave me a choice. Stay in this world or go back and meet him and it's time to meet him. And people are broken, devastated. Abu Bakr cries in the front. He's sitting right in front of the Prophet ﷺ. He says this. He cries like how a child cries. 
You know, when an adult cries, we try to kind of hold it in and kind of wipe away our tears and try to stifle our crying. But you know, when a child cries, they just let it out. He sobs like how a child cries. What does this world look like with the, without the Prophet I don't know. Can my heart handle that? I don't think so. We get the Quran through him. We know Islam because of him. We follow him. We hang on every word that comes out of his mouth. Like, I can't envision life without him. But the Prophet says, time has come. That night, his whole family gathers around him to spend some moments with him. Until his daughter Fatima radiallahu ta'ala anha, she comes, his only surviving child. He was blessed with seven children in this life. Six of them died during his lifetime. The only one to outlive him was his daughter Fatima. Who was the most precious thing in this world to him. She would pass away six months after he did. And Ali said that I lost her the day he passed away. She was never the same ever again. She could not handle his departure. She comes and sits by his bedside. My father has to suffer so much. And he tells her, he consoles her. Your father will not suffer after today. No more. No more. There's no more suffering after today. And then he gives her some good news. He whispers into her ear. She's crying so much when he confirms his departure. She cries and weeps at his bedside. And he whispers into her ear. She would tell Aisha later that you will be the first of my family to come and join me in the afterlife. We're all going to be reunited soon. And she smiles through her tears at the thought of being reunited as a family. And the next morning, Aisha says it was a very tough night. He had trouble breathing. He couldn't breathe. He was struggling to breathe. But when the morning time came and he heard the adhan and everyone was assembled within the masjid, the Prophet asked her to help me sit up, scoop me over to the curtain. And he pulled the curtain aside and he stuck his head out and he glanced at the ummah. Sitting and reading and waiting for prayer. Waiting and uh, ready for prayer. And the Sahaba say we looked at his face. And it was a gift that Allah gave us. That we got one last look at his face. And he was smiling. And they said that every time after that moment we close our eyes. We can see his face smiling at us. We can see his face smiling at us. And he smiled at us. And then later that day he departed this world. Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, the day the Prophet came into our lives, it's like the lights were turned on. He illuminated everything in our, in our lives. And the day the Prophet left this world, it's like the lights were turned off. We didn't know how we were going to survive. We didn't know what we were going to do. And somehow, in the next 10 years after the departure of the Prophet ﷺ, Islam spread five times as far as it did during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ. Islam went five times further in the next 10 years after his departure. Because with every difficulty will come ease. And some difficulties, and there's a lot of pain out there today, will feel like it's going to break you. But if anything could have ever broken us, it was the departure of the Prophet ﷺ. It was losing him. That's the thing that could have broken us. And that didn't break us. We've been in difficulty before. We've been in adversity before. We've licked our wounds before. We've picked ourselves up before. 
We've been able to not just survive, but thrive in the face of difficulty and adversity time and time before. And this time is absolutely no different than that. Because remember what the Prophet ﷺ said, I leave you with two things. So long as you hold on to them, you're going to be okay. And not just, not only will you be okay, but you will thrive. You will flourish. You will succeed. And that is the Qur'an and the life of the Prophet ﷺ. This is a room full of smart, intelligent, educated, very brilliant people who all have so much brilliance in so many areas of their lives. If every single person in this room, all of us, we dedicated ourselves to understanding the Qur'an, studying and understanding the life of the Prophet ﷺ, and then living our lives based off of that understanding, and carrying that understanding forward, it could change the world. It could change the world. We just have to decide to commit ourselves to that. I hope that's the biggest thing everyone can walk away from. Everyone can walk away with. And that is the understanding of the resource and the ability you have. That while the ummah is struggling, you, all of us, have the ability to make sure that the next chapter is one of great successes. But that will only happen if we decide to commit ourselves and realize our potential. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to study the Qur'an. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to be able to understand the life of the Prophet And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to persevere through these tests. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant the ummah of the Prophet great victories in the days to come. Amin ya rabbil alameen. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum. Um, we are going to have a Q&A for the next 10 minutes, inshallah. If you have any questions, there is a website called Slido, S-L-I-D-O, and the code would be YP2019. You can ask any questions on there. Um, the first question that was asked is, does being patient through tests and trials also mean not, also mean not being able to express emotion? Is this a sign of emotion? Uh, very, very good question. Um, so hopefully everyone was able to understand and hear the question. Um, but the perseverance and the succeeding in tests and trials in no way, shape, or form <clears throat> um, takes away from us the ability to have a very kind of human response. The idea more so is about what you do in the aftermath of any given test or trial. It's not necessarily about the physical response that you have. That is something that is very normal. That is something that's very natural. And nothing illustrates that better than again, in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. Many, many examples of this. One of the examples, very powerful ones, that is preserved in the hadith, is that when the Prophet ﷺ lost the last of his children that he lost in this world, a baby boy, a son named Ibrahim, that when he passed away, the Prophet ﷺ was holding his body covered, shrouded, and the Prophet ﷺ had tears streaming down his face almost uncontrollably. Like to the point where he wasn't like actually like crying, but the tears were still coming. Like he wasn't sobbing, but the tears were coming. So much so that some of the companions found it a bit curious and they said, Ya Rasulullah, you're crying like this? Because they as well had that question, but I thought you told us to be tough. So how are you crying like this? And then the Prophet ﷺ said that eyes were meant to cry. And the heart was made to feel pain. And I miss my son. But I won't say or do anything that would be displeasing to Allah. It's about what you say and it's about what you do. But as far as my heart aching, that just confirms my humanity. My eyes shedding tears, that just tells me that my eyes actually work. But, and I miss my son, I'm a human being. But I won't say or do anything. I'll only say that which is pleasing to my Lord. Um, next question is, 
when we do, when, when, okay, when do we know something is a test to overcome versus when it's a sign from Allah to do something different? For example, changing your major. Mm. <laughs> Very good question. It's a good question. Um, <clears throat> again, I'd like to try to frame these things a little bit more kind of technically um, because I think that it helps people make sense of it. The defaults. I told y'all that there's, see, whenever we study some usul, there's always a default of things. There's always a default of things. The default is that when you have different things kind of occurring in your life, especially in the realm of the choices that you make in terms of life, we do not assume these things to be signs from God. Everything is a sign of Allah, but everything is a sign of the greatness of God. But we don't necessarily take it as some kind of a sign of something. But these things are basically choices and decisions that we make. And that's how we operate within them. You mentioned that premise, you mentioned the premises has to be established that there is a fact of the afterlife. Oftentimes we challenge, oftentimes we're challenged with the questions of if God knows the outcome of the test, why would he bother to put us there? How can we properly address that question when we're faced with it? Very good. So the question basically is about, um, you know, the idea of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that if God knows uh, the outcome of the test, then why basically put us through it? Um, one very simple thing that is being, that is discounted by us whenever we try to figure this out is the outcome is known by God, but it's not known by us. And it's not known by us. It's not experienced by us. This entire scenario is for me to be able to experience something. Because ultimately what we can say is that let's play that line of logic out to its ultimate end. God knows the outcome of the test, so why put us through it? Just fast forward is there, right? But then we ultimately are only a result and a consequence of the command of God. So in that sense, we don't have to exist. So let's fast forward there and none of us exist. And then no one's having this conversation and we're talking about nothing and nothing really matters. So the whole point that we have to understand is that our existence is our greatest blessing. Our existence is our greatest blessing. And in that existence, we're meant to have different experiences. And so the question of the fact that, well, Allah knows the outcome of the test. Why put us through it? Why not just take us straight there? Yes, that makes, that might make sense to you initially, but think about what you're saying. What you're saying is then you experience nothing, you do nothing. But then that would ultimately lead us to the conclusion that we are nothing. And we are nothing without the command of Allah. But then we're back at square one. We only exist because God willed us to exist. And the system of God works the way He willed it for it to work. And in that sense, we have to try to navigate within that system that God has created. A lot of this also requires just this understanding, accepting, that we are at the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if we can accept that, then ultimately what we understand is that we're just a product of the will of God. The system is the will of God. And so really there's nothing more to talk about. Sheikh Abdullah said that will end our session for today. Alhamdulillah.